Uh, good day, everyone. Welcome uh, to Church in the Banks. Good to be able to uh, open up this part of Scripture with you tonight. I'm really excited uh, by this because I've been really challenged by it. So I hope uh, you are as well. Uh, let me pray uh, before we begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do thank you for these great reminders of your grace to us. Uh, we want to thank you for that. Uh, that you have spoken to us. And so, Lord, give us hearts that are ready to hear uh, some amazing truths tonight. Give us hearts that are ready to hear some, some hard truths as well, uh, that we might be willing to listen, uh, willing to, to put into action as you would have us. Uh, help me to speak according to your word uh, and in a way that is glorifying to you. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, have you heard of the, the story of, of Corrie Tan Boom at all? Uh, picture it now, it's, it's, it's 1947, uh, World War II has just ended, and Corrie, uh, she's a Dutch Christian woman, and she is visiting a church in Munich, in Germany, and she's got this message that God forgives. And you see, during the war, Corrie and her family hid, uh, hid Jews in their home from the Nazis. And uh, they were eventually found out, and so were arrested. This is Corrie and her family, that is. And were taken off to a concentration camp. And there, Corey experienced humiliating things, horrendous things. And then, as she finishes this talk in Munich, only a few years later, uh, she's looking around in the audience and she sees somebody that she recognizes uh, from that concentration camp. But it's not somebody that, uh, that was a prisoner. But this is what she says about them. And that's when I saw him. It came back with a rush. It's the memory of this man, that is. Uh, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic sm- uh, pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking, pa- uh, walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. Ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Uh, Corey's sister, Betsy, uh, didn't make it out of that camp. But as this man approaches now after the talk, uh, she's about to be face to face with one of her captors from that concentration camp. And just the presence of this guy is bringing back this flood of emotions and memory and pain. But this guy, he doesn't necessarily uh, recognize Corey personally, but the way he in- introduces himself is that he says that he was a former guard of that same concentration camp. Uh, but then he says this, uh, Since then, though, I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the, the cruel things I did there. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? I mean, what would you do? Would you forgive? Could, could you forgive? Now, I'm sure we'll never experience anything like Corey whatsoever. But don't we, don't we even struggle to forgive the little things sometimes? And the sad thing is that uh, we can even be hurt and there can be sin, uh, even among Christians, can't there? And when a brother or sister in Christ, sins against us, you know, whether it's in the church, uh, in a family, in a marriage, uh, someone at work, whatever situation it is, 
It really hurts, doesn't it? Because we just we don't expect it. There can be gossip and lying, uh, broken promises, betrayal, abuse, all these things, even between Christians. Uh, things can be said in haste and anger. Uh, maybe there's a, a Christian spouse that has been unfaithful. And so we ask ourselves, do, do I really have to forgive? Because we expect faithfulness. We expect truthfulness and, and honesty and integrity and godliness. And so that can just make it so much harder to even contemplate forgiveness. So what do we do when a brother or sister in Christ sins against us, perhaps repeatedly? You know, are we, do we just think, oh, too can play this game. You know, it's time for me to get even again. Is that what comes to mind? Or do we, uh, do we just bottle it up and hold a grudge, something like that? Well, in Matthew 18, uh, Jesus says, as children of God, we're to be just like our Heavenly Father, both in how we think about sin, but also in how we think about forgiveness. That's right. So in Matthew 18, we're reminded that as God's children, we're to be just like our Heavenly Father in how we think about sin, but also how we think about forgiveness. Uh, we're not going to focus on those verses there, verse 15 to 20, but there Jesus gives clear instructions, doesn't he, on how we should deal with sin in the church. He says, if a brother sins against you or the body, you know, approach them, call them to account. And if they're not listening, take somebody along with you. And if they still won't listen and repent and, and so on like that, then it just might be necessary to ask them to, to leave the church. God is serious about unrepentant sin in his church. And so should we. You might have heard before that the church can be described as a hospital for sinners, but the patients must at least want to become healthy. But God is also serious about forgiveness. And that is great news because he is gracious when we fail. And he forgives when we repent. And we're told that is the attitude that we're to have with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ here. So just to be clear, what we're talking about today is forgiving, perhaps repeatedly, a brother or sister in Christ who is repentant of their sin. They, they've acknowledged their sin and they're seeking to turn away from it. That's, that's the context of the parable uh, tonight. But all this talk of, uh, of an unrepentant sinner in, in verse 15 to 20 gets Peter thinking. And you can kind of see the logic of his question in verse 21, can't you? He's thinking, okay, Jesus, I've got what you're saying. Now, if... Suppose that brother does actually listen. He, he does repent. I presume I've got to forgive then. Is that right? Uh, and what if he just keeps on sinning against me time and time again? Like how many times do I have to forgive? As, as many as seven times? Now my question is, why does Peter choose the number seven? Uh, perhaps it's because... Uh, like the rabbis apparently around that day uh, would suggest a number of three times is the limit for offering forgiveness. And on the fourth time, 
No, that's it. Don't offer forgiveness anymore. So perhaps Peter is thinking himself to be a pretty gracious kind of guy to be suggesting a number as high as seven. But how does Jesus answer? Look at verse 22. I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Which could either mean 77 or 490, but it doesn't matter either way because Jesus isn't proposing some kind of you know, new revised number here uh, of times that we ought to forgive someone. No, it's meant to be completely outlandish. Jesus saying, keep forgiving without keeping count. Keep forgiving without keeping count. And the only way that we can do that is if forgiveness becomes a way of life. And it's that life that Jesus is calling us to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in verse 23, Jesus says this. He says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to to settle accounts with his slaves. So we've got the king here, he's conducting a bit of an audit, and he discovers that one of his slaves owes him a lot of money. Uh, how much money is it? Well, we see it's 10,000 talents. 10,000. That doesn't mean anything to us, does it? No, not, not really. Okay, what if I put it this way? Uh, one talent equals 6,000 denarii. 6,000! Come on, that's 6,000 denarii. Oh. Well, how about this? One denarius is about one day's wage for the, sort of the, the common labourer back then. That's one day. So to earn 6,000 uh, denarii for that labourer would take him around 19 years. And so then, to earn, in theory, 10,000 talents would take him just a smidge under 192,000 years. That's a long time. And if that's still not, you know, sinking in, let's talk about it in Aussie dollars, right? Just presume for a moment that the average Aussie labourer earns, what, 45000 a year, something like that. Uh, I've got my calculator here. Here we go. Let's work out. 10,000 talents. Uh, 10,000, carry the one. Uh, so that equals, equates to $8.6 billion dollars. That is a massive debt. Now, of course, the point that Jesus is making here is that that's going to be impossible to to repay that debt. Absolute impossibility. And so the slave has to face the consequences. Uh, Look at verse 26. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, to me, this sounds like a bit of an episode from Operation Repo off TV. Or you can imagine if Daryl Kerrigan were here from the castle, you know what he'd say, right? Tell him he's dreaming. You know, this debt cannot be paid whatsoever. But then the king does something really unexpected in verse 27. He says, Then the master of that slave had compassion and released him and forgave him the loan. Now, that doesn't happen on Operation Repo. This is the entire debt we're talking about here. There's not one talent, not one denarius, not one cent that is still to be paid back. And so we see that despite the 
how great the debt of the slave, the king's mercy is even greater. And so it's clear here from, from Jesus' teaching that God's a king, we're the slave, and that debt to be paid back is our sin, which of course we can never repay. And we see that we are deep in debt because we've all rejected God, we've ignored him, we have not loved him as we should. And really, there's only two possible outcomes. Uh, Firstly, that we face the consequences for our sin by coming under God's righteous anger for eternity or that we come to God for the complete forgiveness of our sin. You know, it doesn't matter what we've done. There is no debt that is beyond God's forgiveness. Now, Jesus doesn't intend here to fully, you know, spell out how God actually achieves that forgiveness. But we do know right from the rest of Scripture that it's through what Jesus does on the cross, isn't it? You know, there he took the punishment that we deserved upon himself. He paid for our debt with his blood so that if we repent then we will be forgiven. That is God's promise. And so let's just pause and ask ourselves, what will happen when God wants to settle accounts with me? Have you thought about that before? Because there's no way we can pay it back, not with time, not with good deeds, not with religion, it's not going to help. I know maybe you know that. And so you fear, well, what hope is there? Well, here it is. God forgives. He offers forgiveness once and for all to those who humbly repent before him because Jesus has died once and for all. The parable doesn't end there, does it? And it's, um, it's really important to see that Jesus' main point is not that God offers forgiveness, though that's true, of course. But what Jesus really wants his disciples to get, and what's us to hear, is about what's just about to come up next in this parable. So what happens? The slave, who had been forgiven an unthinkable amount, he goes off, bumps into one of his buddies, a fellow slave who also owes him some money, a hundred denarii, we're told. Now, that's still a bit of a substantial debt, right? That's a hundred days' wages. But it's chicken feed compared to what this the first slave owed the king. It's 600,000 times less, to be precise. But what does he do? He starts choking the other slave, like, like some scene out of The Simpsons with Homer and Bart Simpson, right? You know, pay me back what you owe, he says. And the slave pleads in a similar way. You know, have mercy on him. I'll try to pay it back. But he doesn't get the same treatment. There's no compassion. There's no forgiveness. He just gets thrown off into prison. I mean, how do you feel about this guy who had been forgiven so much and yet couldn't even forgive a little? I mean, it's obvious to us, isn't it, what he should have done? Well, listen to how the king deals with a slave because there is a really, there's a grave warning in there for us too. Verse 32. Then after he had uh, summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked slave. 
And so we see what the slave's heart is really like. And he continues, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. Of course he can't pay back that debt. We know that. And so he's not talking about some kind of purgatory state here. No, of course not. But the parable ends with this grim certainty. The unforgiving slave is going to experience God's punishment forever. You see, what his unwillingness to forgive did was reveal what his heart was really like. And in just in case there are any doubts, Jesus interprets the parable for us in verse 35. He says, So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from, the, uh, from his heart. That's a strong warning, isn't it? Now, Jesus isn't saying here that it's by forgiving others that that's how we're forgiven by God. No, he's not saying that. But forgiving others is what Christians who are forgiven by God, will do. You know, if I put it this way, if I quack, that doesn't make me a duck. Makes me a little strange. Doesn't make me a duck, right? But quacking is what ducks characteristically do, isn't it? And so if I forgive someone, that doesn't make me a Christian. But forgiving is what Christians characteristically do. But then the temptation is, of course, to go, oh, right, this is a, you know, this is a license. Uh, I can be really complacent about my sin. I can be complacent about my repentance because I'm just presuming upon the forgiveness of other Christians. Well, that's not right either because we all still need to take personal responsibility for stopping our sin in our lives. But what Jesus is really talking about in this passage is that if we are unwilling to forgive others, then you can't possibly know God's forgiveness. Jesus tells us that we all deserve God's, uh, you know, our eternal punishment for our sin. And yet in his incredible compassion, God sent his son that we might be forgiven and have our slate wiped clean, that debt gone. And yes, you know, sometimes people, they'll still sin against us. People will still hurt us terribly. But Jesus says, who are you not to forgive? Compared to what Jesus has done for you, compared to how I have forgiven you. And if we don't get that, then I think we've got a real problem of the heart like that slave where we really don't know God's forgiveness. If the kingdom of heaven exists because of God's immeasurable forgiveness, then forgiveness must become a way of life for anyone who is a part of that kingdom. But if we're not willing to forgive, then we are in very, very dangerous territory with God. You know, we should shudder at even the thought of not being willing to forgive. Now, God says in Deuteronomy, you know, vengeance will be mine. 
Vengeance belongs to me. And Jesus says, the person who is not willing to forgive will surely find that out. Now, if we believe that, it would be really helpful, wouldn't it, uh, to find out whether I actually am genuinely willing to forgive a brother or sister. How do I know? Well, here's a couple of diagnostic questions that we can ask. Firstly, do I have any kind of bitterness towards that person? Because, you know, bitterness often results, right, when there's conflict that's unresolved. And unless forgiveness becomes a way of life, then that bitterness is just going to keep stewing in us like we're pressure cookers until it just has to be released and in a way that's not going to be glorifying to God. Secondly, do I find myself subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, you know, just trying to slide this person's wrongdoing into conversation? You know know what I'm talking about, right? Perhaps you do it with the person themselves to invoke some kind of guilt or just to remind them, hey, I've got the upper hand here. You know it's called blackmail, right? Or perhaps you do it with other people uh, to remind them about this, what this person has done. Maybe you're looking for you know, extra sympathy on top. Maybe you're trying to bring this person into disrepute. Uh, do you just let that little bit of gossip slide or slip? Uh, ladies, when you're with your girlfriends and guys, when you're with your mates. Husbands, wives. Do you find yourself using the past failures of your spouse as ammunition in an argument, even though you'd said, I've forgiven you? So as you can see, an unwillingness to forgive is so destructive. And we need to deal with it urgently. You know, for the sake of your relationship with God, your relationship with others, with, with the church, with that's Christ's body, for the sake of his glory, we need to deal with it. And so if you need to forgive someone, if you need to ask for forgiveness, don't delay, do it urgently. And it's true, isn't it? We are on display to the rest of the world as Christ's representatives. And what is so amazing about God's forgiveness that even Christians can't forgive one another? So how do we become willing forgivers? Because of course it's hard, especially if the other person doesn't even want forgiveness. And so reconciliation isn't even possible. And you know what the temptation there is, right? Is to go, well, if they don't want it, I'm not even going to be willing to forgive until they're first willing to repent. Aren't we thankful that God's not like that? Because we're reminded in Romans chapter 5 just how willing God is to forgive. You know, while we were his enemies, while we didn't want forgiveness whatsoever, that is when Christ died for us. And so like God, we're to be no less willing to forgive even when the other person doesn't want forgiveness, even when reconciliation might not seem like a possible outcome. So how do we make sure that it's really from the heart? How, how can we make this forgiveness a way of life? You know, I think the, the big reason we often struggle with this is that we have a too small a view of sin in our own lives. And then we too easily forget the enormous debt that we have been forgiven. 
And so we need to keep returning time and time again to the gospel to see the depths of our sin, but then also the height of God's love in Jesus that we have been forgiven. You know, when I think of that, that is an awfully humbling experience. But it's that humility, that's what we exactly need to forgive others, isn't it? That we move this attention and focus off ourselves and we start setting our eyes on the glory and the mercy and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to understand that forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a commitment. And the only thing that is going to prompt us to initiate forgiveness and to keep us committed to forgiveness is to be continually immersing ourselves in God's word that we are reminded of how God has forgiven us and praying to our Heavenly Father, Father, give me a heart that grasps your forgiveness that I might in turn be able to forgive Betty or Fred or whoever that has sinned against me. As one writer puts it, if we begin to get a glimpse of the vast glory of God, we will realize many of our conflicts are like two ants arguing about which is taller while standing in front of Mount Everest. It's a good picture, isn't it? Well, what became of Corrie Ten Boom's encounter with her captor? Well, let me read out her words. And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message of God that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. Jesus says, If you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. But you, God, you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The the current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed by how you have forgiven us. And it's so easy for us to forget that, to undermine that, to minimize that. Lord, give us eyes to see uh, our own sin, the sin in our lives. And give us eyes to see the grace that you have shown to us. And Lord, if there's anyone here that has been struck by the prospect of you settling your accounts with them, 
pray that they might turn to you for their forgiveness of their sins. But Father, we know that being forgiven calls us to live a certain way, to be a people of forgiveness, to have forgiveness as a way of life. So Lord, we pray that we would be a humble people. We would be a community that would be so gracious, that would be ready to forgive, that would demonstrate to each other, demonstrate to our area, demonstrate to the world that the forgiveness that you have shown to us. And Lord, you know that it's, it's not easy to forgive. It took the blood of your son Jesus to pay the price for us. So Lord, would you give us the humility? Would you give us the strength, the courage to do so, to act? Would you give us uh, a focus on the gospel as motivation to do so? We thank you so much that you are a great God. And may we live each and every day in light of that truth. Uh, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.